Father, how needy we were, how incapable we were, how unworthy we were, and how great was Your grace. How magnanimous was Your love. How extensive is Your salvation. Our Father, our hearts are full of gratitude as we even just read these familiar verses and contemplate again Your provision of salvation for us. We're overwhelmed at Your kindness to us. And Father, as we come to one particular verse out of this passage this morning, though it is deeply familiar to many of us, might the familiarity not preclude us from seeing the greatness of that salvation that You have granted to us? Might it not preclude us from seeing it with fresh eyes and with new eyes and behold Your wonder in a different way that causes us to worship You and delight in You and exult in You? Oh, Father, we thank You for this rich salvation that You have granted to us. We thank You for the grace of Christ that condescended to take on humanity so that He might stand in our place. We thank You for the extensiveness with which He suffered so that He might redeem fallen mankind. And we thank You for the purpose for which He suffered so that we might be redeemed and that we might walk in newness of life. Father, would You give us rich satisfaction in You through this passage this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 502 years ago this week, a lone monk posted 95 topics for debate on the door of the church in Wittenberg with the intention of not of not creating a brand new movement, but with the intention simply of changing that church. He didn't want to to bring that church down. He simply wanted to reform it. His topics that he set out for debate on that day set in motion the creation of a new church of protesters when that church did not change, called the Protestant Church, the Protestant Church, a church of which you and I are members. We need to remember that the debate between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics that ensued on that day in the Reformation was not over grace, it was not over faith, it was not over Christ. It was a debate over a singular word alone. For the Roman Catholic Church certainly did embrace grace. The Roman Catholic Church did and does embrace faith and Christ. Their question and their debate and their objection is over the Word alone. The question that was raised by Martin Luther and continues to be raised is whether there was anything a man could do to bring about or enhance his salvation. Much of the debate then was around the topic of works. What What is the role of works in salvation of an individual? And that debate, my friends, is not over. There is still a vast chasm between what Rome believes and what we believe. Notice how Roman Catholicism explains a believer's cooperation with grace to merit salvation. And I quote here from the latest Roman Catholic Catechism. 
Grace is first and foremost the gift of the Spirit who justifies and sanctifies us. That, frankly, is a good start. Unfortunately, they continue. But grace also includes the gifts that the Spirit grants us to associate us with His work to enable us to collaborate in the salvation of others and in the growth of the body of Christ, the church. The merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of grace. That is not such a good statement. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration so that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God and then to the faithful. Man's merit, moreover, itself is due to God for his good actions proceed in Christ from the predispositions and assistance given by the Holy Spirit. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Even temporal goods like health and friendship can be merited in accordance with God's wisdom. So the believer is equipped and required to provide his own merit to achieve his own salvation. And he can do things that provide atonement for himself and freedom from his own sin and provide merit for others as well. And he provides that merit through indulgences. These indulgences, the catechism says, are a remission of temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which as the minister of redemption, the church is the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. So there's this treasury that satisfies God in relation to our salvation and in relation to our sanctification. And out of that treasury, these things are applied to us. What's in that treasury? In that treasury are the works of Christ and, quote, the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They, her works, are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by His grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the, mystic, in the unity of the mystical body. So we save ourselves and, and we have enough merit left over from our own salvation that we can apply that merit to others as well. How are these indulgences received? 
Again, I quote, An indulgence is obtained through the church, who by the virtue of the binding and loosing granted her by Jesus Christ, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of the temporal punishments due for their sins. Since the faithful departed, now being purified, are also members of the same communion of saints. One way we can help them is to obtain indulgences for them so that the temporal punishments due for their sins may be remitted. Friends, that ought to make you shudder as you consider what the Roman Catholic Church believes about the process of salvation and how deeply dependent it is on the individual to accomplish it. That being said, the self-sufficient, self-righteous, meritorious work that Luther and the other reformers were fighting against is not gone. That form of Pelagianism is still alive and well today. The popular belief, not just among Roman Catholics, but among the great masses of people, is that man is simply scarred by sin, but not mortally wounded by it and dead. He has a form, most people believe, that, uh, of life that enables him to achieve merit before the Lord. He has, he has enough merit left over from himself that he can even apply his merit and his righteousness to the accounts of others so that they can be released from their punishments in purgatory. So the question before us this morning is, can our works do this? Can our works do this? The answer is no. What, what then is the role of works in our salvation? Or, or is there a place for works in our salvation? In fact, what we will find this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 is that works are an essential part of our salvation. But they are the goal of our salvation. They are the outgrowth of our salvation. They are the result of our salvation. They are not the purpose and the reason for our salvation. Here's how the Apostle says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. God has saved us by an act of recreation to live holy lives. God has saved us, and in that process of saving us, He has recreated us, reconstituted us from the inside out, and the purpose of that is so that we might live holy lives. He does not save us on the basis of holy lives, which we have accomplished on our own, but He saves us for the purpose of producing good works and godliness in us. This passage is is Paul's definition of what it means to be a Christian. And this verse offers three hallmark declarations of our salvation, three, if you will, reformation truths about... What did I just do? There we go. Three reformation truths about our salvation. This is not three reformation truths in relation to the Reformation, capital R, and the event that was triggered by um, Martin Luther. But this is the Reformation of our own hearts. This is the Reformation of our souls. This is this is our inward transformation. This is this is what the gospel is designed to do in us and through us. Three Reformation truths about our salvation. The first is given to us at the beginning of the verse, and it is simply that God has saved us. God has saved us. That God has saved us and that God is responsible for our salvation has been a dominant theme in the book of Ephesians. In fact, these opening uh, three chapters could simply be called God's great salvation. We find in these 
opening chapters, um, the greatness of our salvation, and we find the greatness of God producing our salvation, carrying out our salvation, um, making our salvation. Just just flip back a page or two to to chapter one, and just just notice how the apostle emphasizes that it is God who has brought about our salvation. So chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So it is God who has produced our spiritual blessing. It is not that we have produced spiritual blessing on our own, but God has done it, and He has done it through Jesus Christ. Just as, verse 4, He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So so He designed and He purposed and He planned to bring about this salvation. It is an eternal plan that was set apart, uh, that He set apart for us before time began. Verse 5, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself. So, so we did not adopt ourselves to Jesus Christ, but He planned and brought about this adoption that connects us to Jesus Christ. Speaking about Christ, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So God has planned our salvation and Christ has come, taken on the mantle of humanity, and He has brought about our salvation through His blood. And He provides forgiveness of all of our sins according to the, the vast riches, the eternal riches of, of His grace, which... He lavished on us, verse 8. So we did not procure that for ourselves. It was His gift, His kindness that He poured out on us. This is not just the work of the Father. It's not just the work of the Son. It's also the work of the Spirit of God as well. Notice verse 13. Having believed in Jesus Christ, you were sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Spirit of God comes and He identifies, with, uh, identifies us with Christ, connects us to Christ, keeps us in Christ, guarantees our salvation through Jesus Christ. And we find that all the way through the remainder of the first chapter, and it must be that way because of what He says in chapter 2, verse 1. It must be that God has produced our salvation and not we ourselves, because He says in 2.1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was nothing alive in you. There was nothing significant in you. There was nothing of power in you. You were absolutely, completely incapable of producing or procuring your salvation, and your sin had made you that way. You were born a sinner, and you sinned, and that kept you in deadness. In fact, you didn't just, you weren't just dead in your trespasses and sins. That was your lifestyle. Verse 2, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This was your life. You were antithetical to God. You were opposed to Him. You could not do anything. Verse 4, but God, because He is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. Verse 6, raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's, it's God's work. It's nothing that we have done. It's not our power. It's not our authority. It is His grace. It is His kindness. It is His mercy. It is His love. It is His raising up. It is His seating. It is His riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. In fact, if you, if you go back and just look at chapter 1, there are more than 60 references 
to God in chapter 1 alone. When you take all of the pronouns and you take all of the direct references by name to God and Christ and the Spirit, over 60 times in chapter 1 alone, he references God and His work. Friends, friends, our salvation is not of us. It is of God alone. Now, now why, why did He save us? Notice what He says in verse 10. For we are His workmanship. That little word for at the beginning of that verse connects what he's going to say in verse 10 to what precedes in verses 8 and 9. So in verses 8 and 9, he has explained that we have been saved by grace through faith, through the mechanism of faith. It's not our work. It's the gift of God. It's not of works. He doesn't want us to boast. And why is that? Why, why does God save us by grace through the mechanism of faith? He says, because we are His Workmanship. The reason we're saved by grace is because we have been created by God to be His workmanship, His creation, His recreation, if you will. And, and, and notice, notice that He says in verse 9, or excuse me, verse 10, we are His workmanship. Now notice, notice the contrast to how He began this chapter. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Verse 8, you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, verse 9, not of works, so that no one may boast. So it's it's third person, or excuse me, it's, it's second person. You, 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 you. And now verse 10, it's first person. We are His workmanship. We who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we have been saved by Him. And it's not just for the apostles. It's not just for Paul. It's not just for the disciples. It's not just for super saints, if you will. It is for all who believe. It is for all who have received God's grace through faith. It is for all of us. Every believer in Christ is in the very same position. There's no one who is particularly special of which verse 10 is speaking. It is for every believer in Jesus Christ. And notice what else he says, verse 10, for we are His workmanship. We are present tense. We are we are even now His workmanship. So He has designed this workmanship. We'll see it uh, in a few moments we'll, that He has designed this and planned it from the eternal past. But even though it was an eternal plan, it is being worked out in the present tense. Still, now, in an ongoing way, He is presently making us His workmanship. Now what does it mean to be a workmanship of God? The, the, the root word workmanship means something that is made, a work, or or perhaps even a poem. It was used in Greek literature of any work of art that was created by a craftsman, such as even a metal worker fashioning a crown. The, the commentator F.F. F. Bruce translates workmanship as his work of art, his masterpiece, emphasizing that believers in Christ are the culmination of all of God's creative work. We are, we are His exquisite masterpieces, His priceless masterpieces. Michelangelo was asked on one occasion what he was doing as he was chipping away at a stone. 
And he is reported to have said, I am liberating an angel from the stone. Well, friends, that is exactly what God is doing with you and me. He is is liberating a work of art from the destitute nature of our sinful being that we were before we were in Christ. The Scriptures regularly picture God as a potter who is the creator of mankind. So, Consider just for instance Isaiah chapter 29, 15. He says, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, Who sees us? Or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That which is made should say to its maker, He did not make me. Or that which is formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. In other words, Isaiah is saying it's very clear that the God has made, God has designed, God has purposed. Who are we? Who are we to fight back to God? Since He has created our physical bodies, but not only has He created our physical bodies, but this phrase also demonstrates that He has made us spiritual beings as well. He is the creator of spiritual life. The one, the one who has crafted man into a redeemed man that glorifies God. And that's, that's the very picture that we've been seeing on and on through, through the book of Romans, particularly as we've come to Romans chapter 9, that God in His sovereignty as the potter has taken this lump of clay that, that, that constituted the mass of humanity that is rightly going towards hell because of the humanity's rebellion against God. And, and He has taken out of that and He has refashioned people into His spiritual creation so that we might live for Him. God not only brings us to salvation, but He is working to produce our salvation to change us and to transform us. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The most important fact about the Christian is that He is a new creation, a new creature. God the Creator, God the potter, the artificer, God the great maker, the great workman, has brought something into my life that was not there before. And that is what makes me a Christian. The great masterpiece, the God, the artisan, um, is working in me is that He is working me into becoming a worthy worshiper of Him. Sin is removed and fellowship with Him is restored. Friends, God has saved us. We have not saved ourselves. As one uh, theologian has said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin from which we need redemption. We contribute nothing to our salvation. This verse teaches that the good works are the result of the salvation, not the reason for the salvation. Let me just kind of walk you through this and give a brief summary of this verse, even as we head in to look at the rest of it. The word for, again, is connecting um, this verse with everything that is previous to it. The reason we cannot boast of our salvation is because we are the workmanship of God. And in fact, when he says we are a workmanship, notice that he uses the pronoun we are His workmanship. That is, this is God's work. It's not our work. It's His workmanship. It's His creation. It's His salvation. It is His gift to us and for us. And in that salvation, notice he also says we are created for good works. So we are created to do good works. That word for is a preposition that, that, that points to a goal or a purpose or intention. It does not point to a reason. 
So we are not saved because of our good works. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved with the purpose and intention of producing good works. And and the one who is in heaven who has done this has prepared all these things beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should live in them. This is This is His work. God has saved us. The British statesman... Winston Churchill was something of an of an amateur um, painter um, in addition to all his other abilities as well. After his death in 1965, one of his paintings was given to um, Detective Sergeant Edmund Murray, who had served as his bodyguard for 15 years in protecting his life. A few years later, less than a decade later, Murray sold the painting that he had been given by Churchill's family and he received over $7,500 for that, for that painting. It was a substantial sum in that day, a sum that would be probably equivalent to about $50,000 today. When he sold the painting, Murray told of a brief conversation that he had had with Churchill about painting because Murray also was a painter and, uh, and enjoyed painting and loved to paint. And so he showed um, Churchill some of the paintings that he had created. And Churchill said of Murray's work, Yours are much better than mine, but yours will have to be judged on merit. In other words, in other words, um, Churchill's weren't, weren't judged by merit because of his name and his person. Well, friends, everything we do if we try to attain salvation on our own, we'll be judged by our merit. And until we are appealing to Christ our Savior, we have no merit of our own. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot produce any salvation. But friends, when we trust Christ, the merit we need is the merit we receive. And now the Father looks at us not with our own abilities, not with our own accomplishments, but He looks at us with the accomplishment of Christ. This is, this is what His workmanship is. He has saved us. There's a second Reformation truth about our salvation, and that is that God has saved us to do good works. God has saved us to do good works. Notice what the Apostle says in the middle of this verse, where His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Generally, when you see that word creation, you will find it to be a reference to Genesis chapter 1, but that is not what the Apostle is pointing to here. He's not pointing to the creation of our physical lives. He is pointing to the creation or the recreation, if you will, of our spiritual lives. Notice chapter 4, verse 24. He uses the same word there. He says, 4.24, "...put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth." So, so you have as a believer in Jesus Christ, as one who has trusted in Christ and been taught Christ, that's verse 21, you have in Him been created in a new way. You have been recreated for the purpose of righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is in direct contrast to what you were without Christ. Verse 22, 
that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So what you were in the old man before you came to Christ, you were a lustful man engaging greedily in all forms of sinful behavior, and you were being corrupted by those things. You had nothing good to bring to God on your own. And then God has recreated you in Christ Jesus. When he says he has created you in Christ Jesus, it is a reminder that this creative work is brought about by Christ to place us into fellowship in in Him. The power that puts us in Christ is also the power then that will ultimately be worked out through us in our good works. And notice what he says in 2.10, we are created in Christ Jesus. That little preposition in emphasizes our unity with Christ. It emphasizes our union with Him, that we're conjoined to Him, that we're connected to Him. And because we are identified with Jesus Christ, we experience His resurrection power in our lives that produces our sanctification. This is a this is a reality we've seen throughout the book of Romans, and I know you're familiar with this. We've read it numerous times as we've made our way through this book. But just listen again as I read from Romans chapter 6 about what our identification with Christ does. Romans 6, starting in verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the life that Christ had is granted to us so that we can walk with a new kind of life that glorifies the Father, even as Christ glorified the Father. Verse 5. For if we, have been, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. So, joined with Him in His death, and if that's true, then we're also joined with Him in His life and in His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We have been identified with Jesus Christ and that identity with Jesus Christ has removed the power of sin from us so that we no longer have to sin. And it is all His work that is accomplished. It is nothing that we bring to the table. It's not that we are righteous in our own in any way, but we are in Jesus Christ and being in Him He has granted to us this new creation, this new life. In fact, Paul so wants to emphasize that it is Christ's work to do it, that he uses that little phrase, in Christ, 21 times, in Christ or in Him, 21 times in this letter. It's all about Christ. It's nothing about me. It's everything about Him. Notice that Paul also shows us the purpose of why we are created in in Christ Jesus. He says we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Again, this is the goal of our salvation. This is not the reason for our salvation. This is not why we are saved. But this is the intention and the purpose of our salvation. God would have us to be transformed so that we do things that are pleasing to Him, honoring to Him, right of Him. And notice he he says they are good works. That is, they are actions that are morally right. They are beneficial. They are beneficial to us. They're beneficial to others. And they're beneficial to bringing glory 
to God. And this emphasis that, that, that our salvation should result in good works is not something that is particular just to this singular verse. Just, there, there are numerous places we can go, but just listen to a, a few verses from the rest of Scripture. Titus chapter 2, we read this earlier, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. He redeemed us so that we would have a zeal, a longing, a passion, a delight in doing things that are good. Second Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There, there, there is coming a day when God will evaluate, what have you done? Was it good and honoring to me? Was it an overflow of your salvation or was it apart from your salvation and disconnected from your salvation? Galatians chapter 6, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of faith. That's the purpose of our salvation, to do good to others, particularly within the body of Christ. Colossians 1, verse 10, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, so there's this sense of our life in Christ is to be an ongoing work of the fruitfulness of Christ through us. It is God's will that those who are new creatures in Christ will live a life like the Christ who saved them. Augustine was right when he said that without Christ... One is not able not to sin. Without Christ, the only thing we can do is sin. But with Christ, Augustine says, He is able not to sin. Not only are we now able not to sin, but friends, this is the very purpose for which we have been saved. We have been saved so that we no longer engage in sin. This is the purpose of God's redemptive act for us. As one commentator has said, Works are not a condition of salvation. They are a characteristic of salvation. It's, it's, not, it's not that we are required to produce works, but works are produced through us when we are saved. Again, F.F. F. Bruce wrote in his commentary, No one more wholeheartedly than Paul repudiated good works as a ground of salvation and no one more strongly insisted on good works as a fruit of salvation. Our, our works are not that which are redemptive for us, but they are evidence that we have been redeemed. And so as we think about these things, then, then a question might arise. What is the relationship between good works and salvation? What's the connection point between works and salvation? And just for the sake of clarity... Let's consider three ways that the good works might be connected to our salvation. One is to say that faith plus good works is justification. This is, this is the um, tenet of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's not just the Roman Catholic Church. It's a great many people that will say um, that we can contribute on our own to our own salvation, that, that, um, that our works produce some measure of our own justification. And friends, when we do that, it removes God from the equation. It makes us the, the author of our salvation. And it ultimately draws exaltation to ourselves and not to God. We've considered... Uh, a parallel passage in Romans, but let's just listen for a moment as I as I read from Galatians chapter two, 
and the reminder that there is nothing that we can do to justify ourselves. Galatians 2.15 We, Paul says, are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. In other words, we, we have the position of God as God's chosen, position with God as God's chosen people. We're not pagan Gentiles who were not chosen. Then listen to verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So twice he says, it is not the law that saves us, it is Christ that saves us. And in case we miss his point of what he is saying in that verse, he says, in conclusion, at the end of the verse, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You, you, you can't do enough to justify yourself and save yourself. So faith plus good works will never produce justification. There's another possibility, and that is that faith equals justification. That is that there is no connection of works to our faith or to our justification. That, that is that works are excluded. This is part of what's called the free grace movement and, and a host of libertines. And in fact, Paul will address that in Romans chapter 6 when he transitions from chapter 5 to chapter 6 and the abundance of grace that is available to us uh, through Jesus Christ. He says, um, what, what then? Should we, should we sin all the more that grace might abound? And then he says, may it never be. So, so there are some libertines that say, I just want, because grace comes as an application of God's kindness towards our sin, let's just, let's just involve ourselves in a lot more sin so that we can get more grace. And God says, or excuse me, Paul says, absolutely not. The temptation of removing works from our salvation is to believe that our salvation is merely forgiveness. We're just, we're just wiping the slate clean and then having the slate wiped clean. Now we can do whatever we want to do. And that is not what justification is. That's not what our salvation is. That kind of, that kind of theology, friends, will ultimately only lead to worldliness. And we were created not for worldliness. We were recreated by Christ in our salvation for godliness. And the daily work of the gospel is to remove worldliness from the believer and to create a distinction from the world, not to create an excuse to live like the world. So here are a couple of questions. As you think about faith and justification and works, have you eliminated works from the component of your life? And have you done that in order to celebrate some measure of worldliness? Are you concerned about worldliness in your heart? As you, as you look inside, does any measure of worldliness grieve you and cause you concern? Are you concerned about how a thousand ungodly desires daily compete for adoration that is only for Jesus Christ? Are you, are you concerned about all those longings, those wantings, those desires that that move you away from a genuine love for Jesus Christ? Are you concerned about worldliness in your children and grandchildren and parents and friends and neighbors who give verbal assent to Christ but are not being transformed by Christ? There's no evidence of fruitfulness in their life with Jesus Christ. Friends, that, that's, a, that's a question with an eternal implication. Because those who are 
giving assent to Christ without actually believing and being transformed by Christ are giving evidence that they are outside of Christ and unredeemed. Paul does not say we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to say, I believe and then do whatever we want. He says we are God's workmanship created as God's masterpieces to reflect Him. To say we are His masterpiece is to say that we are designed to look like Him. Faith is far more than just justification. There's one other alternative, and that is that faith is justification that produces good works. So so the good works are not the ground of our justification, but the, the good works are the overflow of our salvation. This is, this is what Paul is teaching in this particular verse and what the rest of the New Testament especially um, affirms as well. Listen to what Luther said about good works. He says, quote, Good works do not make a good man, but a good man does good works. Evil works do not make a wicked man, but a wicked man does evil works. It is true that faith alone justifies without works. But I am speaking about genuine faith, which after it has justified will not go to sleep, but is active through love. In other words, when we have been justified, when we have been genuinely saved, that will out of our love for Christ, overflow into some measure of good works that bring honor to Him. Says one Puritan, we are not justified by doing good works, but being justified, we then do good. And that is that is what the Apostle is saying in verse 10. This is the purpose of our salvation. We have been created to produce good works. Not not created because of those good works, but created with the intention of producing them. Then the question is, what are these good works? What, what are the things that God would work in us? In his helpful book, Antinomianism, Mark Jones writes this, For a work to be good, it must be commanded by God, done by the Spirit of God, coming from an inward principle of grace in a believer, and ultimately done for God's glory. What are these good works? They are things that are commanded by God, um, required by God, empowered by God, and done for the glory of God. And there are many things that we could point to, but the, the uh, apostle in Ephesians 4 to 6 gives us multiple illustrations of what these kinds of good works are. They are things that reflect the inward transformation of the heart, that, 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 that our lives are renewed. We, we are walking, as he says in 4.1, in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And then, from that point forward, he gives 40 different imperatives, things that are requirements of the believer in Jesus Christ. And, and even beyond that, more illustrations of the kinds of things that God does in us when we are transformed by His grace. So verse 25 of chapter 4, Lay aside falsehood, speak truth each of you to his neighbor because we are, we are members of one another. What, what is a good work that is the fruit of salvation? It is a ceasing of, of deceitfulness and a lying kind of life and it is uh, the taking on of a truthful kind of life. It is verse 26, being angry without sin 
and not letting the sun go down on your anger, that is, reconciling every offense of anger against another. It is, verse 28, stealing no longer, but rather laboring and performing what is good so that you will have something to share. So we no longer steal, we no longer take what is ours, but we work hard so that we can become givers. And, and we find these kinds of things all the way through this particular letter. The ability to do the work of God and these kinds of things is dependent on the power of God. One cannot obey God until one is saved by God. But friends, once he, is in, once he is saved, he will be inhabited by the Spirit of God and the Spirit will produce the very kinds of fruit that only God can produce. He has saved us to do good works. There's one other Reformation truth that we personal reformation truth that we find in this verse, and that is that God has saved us for the purpose of living holy lives. Notice what he says at the end of this verse, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. God prepared them beforehand. Not just He intended us to do these works, but He has actually laid out, planned, purposed, intended all these things in the eternal past that we would live in this way. Notice that he says He has prepared these things beforehand, beforehand as a reference to eternity past, so that we would walk in them. That word walk is, a, is, is simply a, um, a, the apostle's way of saying, this is the way we should live. This is our pattern of life. This is, this is the way we orient our lives. That we should walk in them perpetually, continually. God has not saved us to do good works occasionally. He has saved us with an eternal purpose that we would always live a transformed life of increasing holiness. And this is, this is what the apostles already said early in this book. One of the first verses, verse 4, chapter 1. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us, He brought about our salvation for the purpose of making us holy, of sanctifying us. This is what Paul will say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. This is the intention of our salvation, that Christ is formed in our lives, transformed in our lives. And, and notice the contrast of this with verses 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was your life before. You could do nothing righteous. You could do nothing good. And now our life characterized and influenced by the new man, by the new creation, by the Spirit of God that resides within us. Now we are changed and now we are being increasingly conformed to Christ. Your salvation is not a decision that is made on one occasion and then just conveniently forgotten. It is a way of life in which we keep coming back to Christ and His death and His resurrection and finding there not only forgiveness from sin, but power to be freed from sin. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are, you are not a Christian, this is the essence of the gospel message that God through Christ will set you free from the judgment of sin, that He will one day pass against all those who reject Him. 
God through Jesus Christ will not only free you from the judgment against sin, but He will free you from the power of sin so that you no longer have to sin. And God through Jesus Christ has made this a way of life. It's not just, it's not just something we do occasionally. This, this is our life. And friend, if you are not a Christian, this is what you must embrace. This is what you must trust. God is making salvation from His wrath available to you. And with that, He is also making freedom from sin available to you so that that is your regular experience. The question is simply, will you trust Him for that today? Will you believe in Him for that today? Will you reject your sin and embrace Him as your Savior? Was the Reformation important? Is personal reformation, is personal transformation important? Listen to what Reeves and Chester write in their very helpful book, Why the Reformation Still Matters. Consider what was at stake. At its heart, the Reformation was a dispute about how we know God and how we can be right with Him. At stake was our eternal future, a choice between heaven and hell. And it still is. That our modern world finds the Reformation alien says as much about us as it does about the Reformers. It exposes our preoccupation with this material world and this momentary life. If there is a world beyond this world and a life beyond this life, then it does not seem to matter very much to us. Out of sight, out of mind. It is a bizarre position to take when so much is at stake. For the Reformers, there was no need more pressing than assurance in the face of divine judgment, and there was no act more loving than to proclaim a message of grace that granted eternal life to those who responded with faith. The Reformation still matters because eternal life still matters. And that eternal life that we have been granted is for the purpose of of enabling us, equipping us to live a sanctified and transformed life. And that is, my friend, if you are saved, why you are saved. Our Father, we thank you this morning for a reminder of these truths from this familiar verse. Might it make us to be hopeful? Might it make us to be reflective? of our condition before you, might it make us to be purposeful to taking seriously the intentions and purposes that you have designed for us in our salvation. And Father, might you be kind to continue to redeem and to continue to transform us so that we might live like the masterpiece that God in Christ is making us to be. We pray these things in Christ's name, for His honor, for Your glory. Amen.